Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. All right. I love that video. If you don't know, we're planning on another youth mission trip this year. Uh, in the summer, we'll be to Puerto Rico. Uh, the COVID years kind of slowed us down for that. And I think it's so appropriate today. We're, we're lifting that up. Uh, Pastor Theron and I will be meeting with parents after service at 1130 or youth, others interested. Uh, there's a lot of ways to get connected. If you have uh, youth in your life, extended family, etc., you don't have to be a member of this church to be part of this. We have witnessed mission trips change lives. They change the lives of all three of my children. Um, going out there and doing something rather than serving yourself and going out to serve. So we're really excited about it this year, um, and we want to put that call out. And it really fits well with our series, which is the power to change. We believe there is a power to change. Uh, but I have some bad, good news and bad news for you this morning, okay? And uh, we have to biblically always put the bad news first because the Bible always ends with good news, Okay. Here's the bad news. We have this core value of transformation. That's not bad news, but that's one of our core values. We had, uh, for years ago, we began with our core values of safety, authenticity, growth, diversity, forgiveness, not as buzzwords, but as biblical terms, which we felt that this ministry needed to be founded on. In 2020, when our vision team looked at the, not just the last 20 years, but the next 20 years, they tweaked our uh, our core value of growth to be transformation that we should not just be growing but also being transformed more into the likeness of Jesus so when we show up on Sunday morning we're not just seeking information but we're really seeking transformation and our core value of forgiveness they tweaked into the word reconciliation where Paul calls us all to be ministers of reconciliation so this whole series kind of is undergirding our core value of transformation. You can change. I don't want to hear you can't teach an old dog a new trick. You'd have to look at Abraham and Sarah straight in the eyes and, and, and say that, or Noah, or others. Or today, we're going to talk about Daniel. Um, change happens as Jesus Christ comes into our lives. It says we become a new creation, right? See, I am doing all things doing a new thing, Isaiah says. Um, do you not perceive it now? We believe that change is possible in Christ. In fact, the old saying used to say, Jesus accepts us right where we are, but he doesn't want to leave us that way. He's helping to grow us more into the, his own likeness. And the bad news is we tend to not experience lasting change. Uh, Chip is great at quick change. Okay, I had a good crossover when I was a point guard in college. I'm good at crisp change. Lasting change takes, takes more attention, takes more effort. And we do not experience sometimes lasting change because we try to change in the wrong way. So I think Pastor Steve last week catched such a beautiful net 
over what kind of our change ought to look like as we, as a body and individually, grow more into the likeness of Jesus. But we need help in the way to change. But here's the good news. We can learn to change. There are biblical principles that can help us learn to change. I heard a great story of change recently. It was about the British cycling team. Now, I don't follow British sports and I don't know much about cycling. But they had a massive change take place in 2003. The British cycling team for over 100 years was immersed in mediocrity. Since 1908, almost 90 years, they had won one Olympic gold medal over that period of time. And in the, in the not just the Olympics, but the largest cycling event in the world, which is the Tour de France. I heard somebody say it back there. You said it with an accent, too. That was so cool. Tour de France. Viva la France. Okay. Um, that was really cool. Um, do you stay in that seat, though? I don't want you to take my job. Uh, but the Tour de France, in the 110 years running of the Tour de France, never once had a British cyclist won the event. It was so bad that there was a bike manufacturer in Europe, one of the most prominent manufacturers, that would not sell their bikes to the British cycling team because they were worried other professionals would see them riding them and it would affect their sales. But in 2003, something changed. Their governing board hired a man named Dave, Dave Bracefield. And Dave Bracefield, uh, as their performance director, he uh, applied a strategy that he called the aggregation of marginal gains. The aggregation of marginal gains. Where the, the strategy is searching for tiny margins of improvement in everything we do related to, you know, uh, achieving a task. That, that what he said, this was his words, the whole principle came from the idea that if you broke down everything you could think of that goes into riding a bike and then improve it by 1%, 1%, you'll get significant increase when you put them all together. So they broke down everything that went into riding a bike. They uh, designed new bike seats that were more comfortable for riders. They rubbed alcohol on the tires to give them better grip. They asked riders to wear electronically heated overshorts so that their muscle temperature would stay at the optimal temperature for great performance. They began to use biofeedback sensors to monitor how individual athletes responded to particular workout techniques. They tested various fabrics in a wind tunnel to see what their riders should be wearing. And they determined that their outdoor riders should be wearing indoor riding suits because they were lighter and more aerodynamic, but they did not stop there. They tested massage gels, hundreds of them, to find out which particular one scientifically uh, produced the, the uh, um, fastest recovery time. They hired a surgeon to teach their riders how to properly wash their hands so they would have less chance of catching a cold. They determined the pillows and mattresses that led to the best night's sleep for each one of their particular riders. They even painted the inside of their truck white so that they could see what would otherwise be undetected pieces of dust 
that might affect the performance on these highly sophisticated bikes. Small 1% little incremental changes in every area of the aspect of riding a bike. What happened? Five years later, the British bicycling team dominated the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. This group that had not won but one gold medal, one, count one, and one, you know, since 1903, won 60% of the gold medals in Beijing. Four years later, the Summer Olympics came to their hometown of London, and in 2012, they raised the bar higher. Not only did they win almost every gold medal related to cycling, but they set nine Olympic records and seven world records. That same year, uh, a British rider, Brad Wiggins, became the first cyclist from Great Britain to win the Tour de France. The next year in 2013, his teammate Chris Fromm won the Tour de France. And when Chris could not defend his title in 2014, he went on then to win the Tour de France in 2015, in 2016, and in 2017. And at that time, British cyclists who weren't even being sold particular bikes had won five out of six Tour de France's in six years. What led to the change? The aggregation of marginal gains. Now, I heard that story in a book that was suggested to me by some younger members of our staff. The book is Atomic Habits by James Clear. And you should know about that book if you get our e-notes because we've been giving you recommended reading to do for our teaching series. And Pastor Caleb and Pastor Kurt had said to me, this is a great book for you to read as we're looking on the power to change. Because James Clear takes this theory, the aggregation of marginal uh, you know, uh, gains, and, and, and looks to how could he asks in his book, why do small improvements accumulate into such remarkable results, and how can we replicate this approach in our own life? And what James Clear looks at is if we just give ourselves opportunity to get 1% improvement in, let's say, areas of our prayer life, areas of our worship life, any of the spiritual disciplines, because we want to grow closer with God, 1% improvement in areas, this applies to other things, as you know, will give you an increase at the end of the year by almost 38 times over. But if we decrease by 1%, we just trend ourselves back to zero. And what James Clear says, this is the, how we form habits. He calls them atomic habits, little habits. As a preacher, I'm calling them holy habits. What are habits we can create? The, the problem is too often we focus on goals. Okay, I've been a goal setter all my life, but I think I have tried to form habits the way I set goals. And that's uh, what my dad would call bass awkward. You can do that translation at home. Um, but it's, 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 it's taking something that, he, that goals are the result, systems are the process that create the goals. Goals are the results of what you want to achieve but the systems we put in place are the processes that lead to that result. 
the last three plus years have been very disruptive for people's faith. I've talked to many of you and others. And, but I've been thinking about, there was a, a billboard sign back in the 90s that would always get my attention. You know those little ones that they put out there, like words from God, you remember those? Um, you know, uh, and the one that got me was, if you and God are not as close as you used to be, who moved? Who moved? Incremental little changes. Like James Clear talks about, it's like flying from LAX in Los Angeles to LaGuardia Airport in New York City, and the, the nose of the plane just edges off course ever so slightly, a few feet at a time. You barely notice it, but all of a sudden you're flying three and a half degrees south, and by the time you reach the East Coast, you won't be in New York City, you'll be in Washington, D.C., and I think that happens to all of us in our, little, in our life of faith, in our journey. Just little, uh, you know, just little incremental decreases in holy habits, right? So even in our holy habit of worship, um, isn't this interesting? Hebrews says something very interesting. It said, let us hold unswervingly to the hope. Hope is such a great thing. There's so much hopelessness in the world. We need hope. But hope by itself will not lead to change. It's hope that is the fuel that helps us to create habits. So let us hold unswerving to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good needs. Not giving up on meeting together. Because COVID-19 came. And some of us got to the place where we worshiped online once a month. And if you're worshiping online, we love you. But we do want you to know we would really enjoy hugging you. And we meet every Sunday. We're here today and we'll be here next week. Amen? Amen. So let us not give up on meeting together as some are what? In the habit of doing little incremental changes. And we end up in a place where we're not growing into what we believe God wants to the fullness to be. And um, Clear talks about something he calls the plateau of latent potential because he said this is incremental change happens this way, right? Uh, it, or actually this way, it's like a plane taken off and then it spurs on. We think it should happen this way. So when all of a sudden, you know, I was walking eight miles a day and in three weeks I hadn't dropped 20 pounds, I get into what's called the the valley of disappointment. It's not, it's not working, right? And I forget that it's incremental changes. Incremental changes in your journey of faith, right? Start small, keep it simple, right? Just little tiny changes. I talked to a couple a couple months ago, and they said, we want to pray more as a couple, but we really suck at prayer. And I said, well, how about you do this? How about just set a time after dinner, before bed, whatever works for you guys, and, and keep it simple. Just take one other's hands and say, I just want to thank God for one thing today. And each of you do that. And this starting small, keeping it simple. About a month later, they said, you know, those one things turned into two things. And those two things turned into three things. And now we're actually praying about 10 or 12 minutes a day. We've never done that in 30 years of marriage. It's small, little, incremental adjustments, right? James Clear writes, it's so easy to overestimate the importance of one defining moment 
and underestimate the value of the value of making small improvements on a daily basis. That hit home for me as a preacher, because preachers, we love mountaintop experiences. Believe me, we love them. I love them. They're fuel for the journey. And they happen, and we need them. But sometimes if we're always looking for a mountaintop experience, we're going to be in some dry valleys where we can still make small, incremental changes. I was at a preacher conference, I don't know, it was, I think it was you know, 20 years ago, and I noticed we were asked about, talk about how you came to faith in Jesus. And all of us had these stories that sound like the Apostle Paul. We were all on horseback somewhere. We were full of ourselves. We were riding into Damascus or Cleveland or Columbus or Dallas, and God knocked me off my high horse. I started realizing, God, we're really pressured to just talk about, we have to always talk about our faith life like it's, you know, this dramatic experience. And I was thinking to myself, who in the Bible shows us incremental, step-by-step, daily forming of holy habits that lead to change? And I came to the case study of Daniel. See, Daniel is, he is in a place that is extremely um, hostile to his faith. If you know anything about the story of Israel, Babylon came in with King Nebuchadnezzar, 589 BC, burned Jerusalem to the ground, destroyed the population of the people, and Babylon's process for indoctrination was they would take a great deal of the population, leaders in every area and field, whole families that had influence, and they would take them into captivity back in Babylon where they would be indoctrinated into Babylonian culture and structure and thus made subordinate. And, and Nebuchadnezzar was such a terrible, ruthless leader that to humiliate the exiles, what he made them do was absolutely be stripped naked and march for tens and twenties and thirties of miles while he sat in his high seat on his ship to humiliate them. And Daniel would have been a teenager around that time. And he ends up in this foreign land and his whole life of faith develops there. And if you've seen portraits of Daniel in the lion's den, I'm going to talk about that story a little bit, hopefully do some corrective theology. If you've, if you've heard of that story of Daniel in the lion's den and you ever see a picture of Daniel where he looks like he's 30 and he's been working out all week, that's not biblically accurate. Daniel would have been 80 years old when he was thrown in the lion's den. He had been incrementally dealing with habits that would grow his faith throughout his life, and he was able to face adversity with such inner calm, with such poise, um, and not fall apart in the midst of the crisis. He's somebody that did that 1% for 80 years, and that's the Daniel that ends up in a lion den. You say, okay, Chip, where in the scripture does it show Daniel forming holy habits? Well, how about this scripture? See, what had happened was, yeah, what had happened, I don't know how I did that. I think I reverted to Youngstown a little bit, sorry. What had happened, um, Tour de France, um, what, what happened was Daniel was rising to prominence. He had been in the, in the two empires, been in Babylonian Empire with Nebuchadnezzar, then in came Persia with Cyrus, they ransacked Babylon, they took over, and all those administrations kept Daniel in leadership because he had such high character and such high competence. But when it became clear that King Darius, who loved Daniel, decided to make him the number one in charge, his colleagues got 
angry. His Persian satraps and architects got angry. They're like, look, we got to cancel this guy. You know, that's in vogue right now. We got to cancel him. We got to find a way to get rid of him. And so they, they look at Daniel's life and it's really impeccable. And they say something that shows us the fortitude of Daniel's spiritual life. They said, the only way we're going to, you know, trap this guy is if it has something to do with his relationship with God. Because he's working in government and he's not like us. They were extremely corrupt in that day and age. He was squeaky clean, high character. So they wanted to attack his faith. So they go in to Darius and they say to Darius, look, we got a great idea. Great idea. Let's have a 30-day celebration for you. We'll have floats. We'll have parades. We'll shoot off fireworks. Everything will be in your honor. And that nobody, let's put a decree out, can pray to anything, anybody, any God except you for those 30 days. And Darius, I don't know why he was, that's a great idea. Like no politician would do that today. Um, That's a joke two of you got it. Um, you know, but Darius does, he, he goes, yeah, let's just make it all about me. And so then now they know they got him because they know Daniel's faithfulness. They had observed it. And when Daniel heard, watch this, he learned that the law had been signed, this law, he went home and did what? Knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he prayed three times a day just as he had always done. See, this, this, is, a, this is a regular thing, giving thanks to his God. Daniel changed 1%. He made one holy habit about prayer three times a day, and he was not going to be deterred from that. And it created him into the person that he was able to face the adversity of which he faced. And Daniel learned a few lessons. He had a few habits. I'm just going to flash three at you real quick. They come from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I see evidence as Daniel created holy habits, how it turned him into the person that God wants all of us to be. First, he has what I call a salt habit. You remember Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Do you know salt, what does it say? If it's stored up somewhere, it does no good, right? Salt has to go out. When Israel came into Babylon and they were exiles, they said, we're not going to go near those evil people. They're terrible. We're going to stay out here by the river Shabar. We're not going to go into Babylon. We're not going to get exposed to their culture. We're not going to go to their movies. We're not going to read their books. We're not going to sing their songs. We're not going to interact with those people. We certainly aren't going to intermarry. And Jeremiah writes, we've preached on this in Jeremiah 29. Look it up in case you think I'm making this up. Jeremiah, who says, whoever is preaching that garbage to you is wrong. That's not from God. You are to go out. You're not to separate. You're to go out to be agents of preservation in the world. You're to do what salt does. They put salt in meat that would break down or other things. It was for refrigeration. And and salt 
is as Christians, we're called to go out to broken places in the world. Not every place in the world. They didn't put salt everywhere. They didn't put salt in potatoes that wouldn't break down. They were selective where they put their salt. And Christians need to go into places and neighborhoods and communities and families who are broken and get out there and be the healing presence of God and Jesus Christ, connecting diverse people who share a common brokenness just like me with Jesus. And some people say, well, Chip, I don't want to go there. Those people give me the creeps. You gave Jesus the creeps. And he went to the cross for you and bled and died for you. I'm so sick of Christians refusing to go out because they want to be right. Jesus didn't call you to be right. He said, none is righteous. No, not one. I came not to call the righteous, but broken people to be a physician. And we don't go to a physician until our own aspects of self-care has run out. And we need help that's above ourselves. Jesus said, I'm that kind of God. I didn't send you out to be right. I send you out to be salt. And Daniel, Daniel was salt. Look at Daniel. He was out there. He was working for the good of the city. He was, he was you know, uh, behaving himself in decent ways. And this is a great example why I need to break one other stereotype in the church. And that is there's something in the church that implies this. And it drives me insane. It says, look, if you're really, really spiritual and you turn into this really like spiritual person, then you should go into ministry. Should become a pastor or a missionary. You know how crazy that is? How are we going to be salt if it's just the paid professionals going out into the world? We can't widen the circle the way we're supposed to do it unless you all take up your particular mission and your particular calling and hold certain hands that only you can hold and heal certain lives that only you can reach and serve certain hurts that only you can heal. Don't buy that garbage. Every one of us in this room has been called to ministry if we know Jesus. He didn't say preachers come follow me. He said to you, come follow me. Come and deny yourself and take up your cross and learn what I have for you. If Daniel wanted to be Isaiah, he could have been Isaiah. If he wanted to be Jeremiah, he had gifts of prophecy, but he knew God had planted him a certain place and he worked for the good of people being salt. And that's a habit you form. And he was fueled by prayer. Second thing, he learned how to deal with what I call the hurt habit. Jesus said, after he told us to be salt, he said, you know, in this world, you're going to be hurt, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people revile you, persecute you, other all kinds of evils against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Jesus is putting a warning on the label. If you go out and do what I'm teaching you to do, to love your enemies, to bless those who persecute you, to be loving to those who hate you, you're going to be hurt. A lot of us don't want to go out because we're worried we're going to be hurt. You can't follow the followings of Jesus if you're not willing to take a scratch or two. Okay? It's called to do it. I remember back when I was running my business, I hadn't planned on telling you this, but it just popped into my head. I was young. I was 24 years old, took over the family business, didn't quite know what I was doing, but I had enough teaching me of Christ thanks to my college chaplain who had brought me into a saving relationship with Jesus. I used to be religious, but he taught me how to be a Christian. 
And I remember I was out there running this business and I'm trying to improve this. We took a division from a million in gross sales to five million in gross sales. And we were chugging along and we were the young kind of fresh expression on the block. And in my business, it was selling water products and sewer products. Two things you had to have to be successful. You had to have a fire hydrant line and you had to have um, a water meter line. And there were only three or four in the country. And if you didn't have one of those, you were going to be in trouble. And lo and behold, one of those came and solicited us to be their exclusive rep in eastern Ohio and western PA. It was a really big, big deal. It was, it was a half-million-dollar deal, which when you're a five-million-dollar business, that's 10% of your, of your business, right? And they flew in from Alabama, and... Um, we, we went out to dinner, and they took us to, those of you who think I'm making this up, Google Youngstown, Ohio, Moonraker Restaurant. I remember where I was. Hey, thank you. My brother. It's not there anymore, I don't think. I used to go to the boathouse up the street. We'll change the notes later. But anyhow, so we're out there, and Wyandotte, I had my executive staff. We went out, and the salesman, I had come pretty close, who was in the region. He was real excited to do the deal. And the executive vice president of that company came, and he was being polite. He's a southern guy and all this. And uh, we were supposed to sign the contract at the end of that dinner. And he said, well, let me tell you something, uh, Chip. I got something to tell you. And he told the most god-awful, horrible, racist joke that I think I've ever heard. And I sat there, and my staff all put their heads down. <laughs> they knew what was coming. And I got up, and I shook our salesman's hand, and I said, hey, um, I really appreciate you guys doing this, but we will not be representing your product in East Ohio and Western PA. And I walked out and that cost me a bunch of money and it cost me a bunch of grief because that company trashed me for the next two years to anybody that would listen. Now, I don't get a medal for that, but you know, if you go out there to live Jesus's way, it's gonna hurt. It's gonna take some hits, okay? There's no way around that. Um, and, and that's something sometimes we don't talk about enough. Okay, lastly, what he had was what I call the light habit. He was reflecting, Jesus said, you're the light of the world. The light in that was, was watch fires that they would build on hilltops to bring ports home. Do you know every one of us had called to be a lighthouse? But we'd be one like John the Baptist was, who said, I'm not the light. See, I think preachers and leaders and others sometimes, we get caught up in press clippings. We are not the light, but we give witness to the light. And that's what Daniel did. He reflected something different in the world. Um, and the world saw it and they saw his witness. Now I got 42 seconds. So I'm going to take about three minutes more. Brown's off week, right? Dre only, Leah only sang a song and a half. I'm good. Anyhow, here's the deal. I think some of your, you on your faith journey may have been hurt by this story of Daniel in the lion's den. I think you may have been because here's too often how me growing up in faith and that in church, too many often television, internet, I've heard this story preached on. And here's what they say. Daniel, God rescued Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, God sent an angel. And, you know, um, if you're good, if you're courageous, God will never let anything bad happen to you. You'll be in there with the lions and you'll never get a scratch. And that is not the gospel. It's not. Because I know a person who prayed a whole lot more than Daniel did. I know a person who was way more holy and righteous than Daniel was. I know one who had a greater gift of prophecy. And he was thrown into a den too. 
And he had a big stone rolled up against it, just like Daniel did. And he didn't come out without a scratch. He came out with scratches from a crown of thorns, from nails in his hands and his feet, and a spear in his side. And in the ultimate lion's den, he was torn to pieces. So if it doesn't even represent the life of Jesus, it can't represent the message of Jesus. Because Jesus said, because of what he did for us, going into the den for us, that he is showing us that we can never be cut off from God. Because he was cut off and separated, we never will be. And so the light of that love and that grace of what he did for us, that's the message of Daniel Lyons' den. It's pointing to what's been done for you. So that when you, he, Jesus won the ultimate lion's den. So when we go in our little lion's den, we don't have to panic. We know that God is with us, right? Here's the thing. I, I, I picked this up this week looking at it. When Daniel, the next morning after being in the lion's den, when Daniel was at, the king came out. Let me just read the story to you. It says that the, very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you served so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, my God sent, watch this, an angel. This is really important stuff, guys. God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth. Now, let me tell you something. There is this cryptic figure all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, all throughout what we call the Old Testament, which is called the angel of the Lord, that sometimes God sends an angel, right? But sometimes God sends his angel, the angel of the Lord. When Hagar was thrown out in the Judean wilderness, him and her son given a commission to die, and, you know, by jealous Sarah and cowardly Abraham, and she's out there in the middle of the wilderness, almost, almost ready to die. It doesn't say God said angel. It says the angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar and said, do not be afraid. I bring you a well in the wilderness. Do you remember the one who came and said, I can give you living water that will burst up in your soul so that even if you don't have the water of the well, you'll never grow thirsty again. Hagar, I have living water. And you are safe with me. That's the angel of the Lord. In fact, three chapters of three, the third chapter of, of Daniel, three chapters earlier, we see this same figure show up for three young teenage boys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you never heard of them, you need to read up because a lot of people in America think they're herbs. They're not. They're three dudes, right, who loved God. And, and they went to another king who said, look, if you don't bow down to me, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And they said, Lord, king, throw us in. If our God saves us, he's our God. If he doesn't save us, he's our God. And we're not going to bow down to you. And they were thrown into the fiery furnace. You know the story. And the king said, hmm, we threw three of them in, but there's four of them in there now. And he said, it looks like the angel of the Lord, which is the son of God. And when Daniel was in the lion's den, he said, no, God sent his angel to come in and shut the mouths of lions. Let me tell you what I learned this week and I'm just a little excited about it. I promise I'll tell you it. I'll stay down. But here's what I learned. Why didn't God save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego outside of the furnace? Why didn't God save Daniel outside of the lion's den? He could have done that. 
He, he had every opportunity to do it. God saw people conspiring him because Jesus Christ, the son of God, goes in with us to the fiery furnace. He goes in with us to the lion's den. And he shows us that the only lions that can ever hurt us, he took everything they had to bring so that we might know peace. Let me close with these words of Psalm 22, if I can get to them. This was what David said the Messiah will cry out from the cross at some point. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far cries from my anguish, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. For he's not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. All will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Future generations will be told about the Lord, the angel of the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And Daniel... Daniel kept his eyes on that one and he created holy habits so that he would better know that one so he could be salt so he can't handle the hurt and he can be light I'm five minutes past my time but I showed this picture earlier that's by an artist named uh, Britton Rivieri he painted that portrait of Daniel and there was a very famous pastor some of you may know him Charles Stanley my wife loved Charles Stanley. I found him a little boring. I'm more of an Andy Stanley guy. But my wife is holier than me, so Charles Stanley had to be holy. And she would listen to him and read his books. And Charles Stanley, if you know the story, his church pretty much turned against him. His son and he had a major falling out. And he was sure that he was going to have to leave the church. There was an elderly woman in the congregation that pastor, I want you to come over and have lunch with me. He went to her care facility. They had lunch. She said, I need to show you something in my room. And she took him in, and she showed him this picture on her wall. And she said, Pastor, tell me what you see here. And Pastor Stanley, as he always did, could go through a great biblical exegesis of everything in the story. And the woman said, you missed one thing. Daniel's not looking at the lions. He's looking at the light. Don't look at the lions, Pastor. Look at Jesus who stills the mouths of the lions for you. That's a power to change. So I'm kicking the ball back down the road to Pastor Caleb. He'll pick it up next week, talking about how can we continue to form holy habits that we might know the inner strength and the faith of Daniel. You know what Daniel's name means? Daniel. It means God is my judge. What you think of me doesn't matter because I know the one that can quiet the lions and speak grace to my heart. I hope you receive that and shine it in Jesus' name. Amen.